Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Recording Contrarians Corner for the Upside. Hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Episode number ninety-four, as we inch ever so closely to the elusive episode one hundred, and also into our sixth year. Right, we're yeah. this is our last episode of year five. We started in fourteen. Yeah, because yeah. we celebrate. Yeah, we're right, going were, into yeah, right. year six. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to die someday. Uh, here we are continuing the autumn of remakes. We were a whole five years younger when we started this, Alex. <laughs> There's a lot of things that were different about me then. That was also about 50 pounds ago. <laughs> For me, at least. You've maintained your svelte Peruvian I've, build. I've gone up and down like the roller coaster that is this movie. You've gone up and down like the speeds on the wheelchair in this movie. <laughs> exactly. Continuing the autumn of remakes, we are here today to discuss, dive into, dissect the 2019. I forgot it came out this year. Yeah. Because it's been in the can for like two years. Has it? Really? Yeah. It's been done. And I, I, I knew it had been done for a while. I couldn't find my research. Just very small bit of real talk before we get into this. Uh, I couldn't find why that was i assume just uh well i'm not going to answer my own question it was a weinstein oh well, there you go yeah either that or trump became became president he's like <laughs> no <laughs> equality <laughs> what is this we're here today to talk don't about don't give him any ideas <laughs> the upside released in january of this year this is this is probably our closest uh release to recording that we've ever done as far as an official episode i mean we did talk about uh gaudy pretty much the month after it came out well we th- did that like was not like a half hour review of once upon a time in hollywood also and uh batman versus superman dawn of justice no, we don't also... remind me <laughs> here nor there the upside is the american import or the port of the french film that we covered in our last numeric episode the untouchables story of a quadriplegic man who needs a caregiver to take care of him because if foreign language films aren't your thing, you'll just wait. Someone will make it in English. There's a really good chance Kevin Hart's going to be in it. And <laughs> now there is maybe stars Brian Cranston, Nicole Kidman, and Kevin Hart. He is he's here. <laughs> so this is is this directed by Michael Haneke? <laughs> <laughs> You're off to kind of stealing my joke already, stealing some of my thunder. Uh, this is directed by Neil Berger known for other such timeless films as Limitless, Divergent, and The Illusionist, which that was released around the same time as The, the Prestige. The Prestige, yeah. yeah. 
It was, it was, I'm sorry, Ed Norton, but that was the poor man's the prestige. So, not as highly revered as its French counterpart. This is, uh, I believe, somewhere around 40% now. Uh, if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, first of all, we do appreciate your listen, as always. Uh, to give you a quick rundown of what we do here, uh, our mantra is we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Find a movie that is highly ranked on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, make a case for why it shouldn't be. We take it down a few pegs. Find a nasty green splotch of rotten movie and talk about the the positive merit of it. And all in a sense to uh, kind of point out the inherent flaws with the Rotten Tomato system, but also prove that you can be over the moon about anything if you really want to. Or you can be really cynical about everything. In this case, it's a rotten movie. We're going to talk about it so it was fresh. If it was a fresh movie, we talk about it so it was rotten. And then in the second half of the show, Real Talk. We'll tell you how we really feel. Sometimes it matches, sometimes it doesn't. I've been getting some texts from Alex, <laughs> so I kind of have a hint uh, of uh, how he really feels about this movie. Yeah, typically we watch movies together, but for the sake of time, we both watch this on our own uh, our own time. <laughs> sake of time. See how many times I can use time in a sentence. Uh, what I was getting at, though, is typically uh, uh, the movies we do are a bit more to the extreme uh, on their side of the coin. The original The Untouchables being at 75%. We usually stick between like 100 and like the high 80s. Yeah, high and, 80s and then and, low 30s. Yeah, and for this, uh, the upside, it is rotten, but it's at 40%, which uh, it, we usually go, we kind of tend to go a bit lower than that. But we had a gimmick, damn it, and we wanted to... Oh, to yeah, it worked like perfectly. play into it. With that in mind, it is a rotten uh, movie on the old RT, so... What uh, what were these critics griping about? Um, all right, so I got a, a handful of rotten quotes from Rotten Tomatoes, starting with Eli Glasner from CBC News Network. He says, This is a movie filled with a painfully obvious story and manufactured mawkish moments. It doesn't just pluck our heartstrings. It trashes a power cord. Uh, Ruben Peralta Rigod from Cocalicas says... Following a drama as moving as The Green Book, The Upside offers a slightly similar version of the same type of formula without the sophisticated gravitas. Wait, we're calling Green Book a sophisticated <laughs> gravitas? Or possessing I mean, sophisticated our, gravitas? Our friend Ruben, or Ruben, he, uh, he definitely... He is saying either, well, this movie makes Green Book look good, or this movie is not as good as Green Book. I'll hold my tongue until the second <laughs> half. I plead the fifth. I, the fifth. Uh, Kristen Lopez from Forbes says, perpetuating the idea that people with disabilities are entitled fat cats isn't a good look. <laughs> Jesus. Um, Kristen, Wait. I don't know that out of all the things you could complain in this movie, I don't know that this is the the thing. Like That's the hill you're going to die in? It, it's... He's just a rich snob. Like that's also apparently. Yeah, sorry, Kristen, uh, you're on an island with that one. Uh, and finally, Kath Clark from Timeout. You're on the shelf with the original cut of this movie. Kath <laughs> uh, Clark from Timeout says the suggestion, even in a, in a crowd pleasing comedy, that America's racial divides can be bridged by Pavarotti and a joint is downright Stone Age. I also get the impression, just by off those one sentences, there's a very good chance the people that wrote those reviews had no clue there was a French movie right. that this is based on. Um, so, right to it, my research obviously wasn't too deep, because uh, I was able to find on the Wikipedia page here 
exactly confirming what I thought may have been. Uh, the film premiered at the 2017 Toronto Film Festival, originally to be distributed by the Weinstein Company in March of 2018. The film was shelved and sold off following uh, something happened with Harvey Weinstein. Uh, sexual abuse. Jesus. Wow. First I'm hearing about it. Might want to look into that before we do any other uh, Harvey Weinstein produced movies. Uh, it was eventually bought by STX Entertainment and Lantern Entertainment, the successor of TWC, who then released it in the United States on January 11, 2019. So that makes sense. I wonder That's how good. many other movies there were that were shelved because of that. That they were like, we're not going to taint this with the TWC logo in front of everything. It's fair. I mean, through no fault of anyone in this movie, if they had released it at that point in time, it probably would not have done the box office just because of the name on it. I mean, rotten or fresh, you cannot argue that it's meant to be a crowd pleaser. Nothing says you crowd don't pleaser. say. <laughs> like the TWC. Yeah. To put you in a good mood. So the upside features our two main characters residing in New York City. We have Kevin Hart playing Del Scott and the quadriplegic uh, Philip Lacasse. Lacasse. They say their last names like once or twice in it, but Walter White, Brian Cranston. Yeah. So it's Malcolm's dad. Kevin Kevin Hart playing Omar Sy, the American version of Omar Sy, and Walter White playing, you know, the American version of that dude that he's a character actor in France. But Francois? Francois. He never made it to the X-Men, so really, we don't know his name. <laughs> he, he didn't play Bishop in the X-Men, so fuck it. Uh, now it's going to bother me. i got to look up his name. Francois... Cranston. Cluzet, who was Philippe. <laughs> this was Philip. Philip. And I'm guessing Dell is the American version of Dries, which was Omar Sy. Um, so it's going to be a lot of repeating ourselves on this one, so I, I figured we'd kind of walk through the plot since we already went through it in the last episode, but then kind of focus on where things What's differ. Different, yeah. Basically all the improvements that, yes. that America made into this French uh, little movie. All just like with food, how we add cheese and bacon to it. We find it anywhere else in the world. And Lots of bacon and yes, cheese have been the, added to this. Yeah. That's the good kind though. Complete sidebar. But back before we had cable in my house, I used to watch the British feed of television shows that I wanted to watch and uh, specifically Monday night raw and I remember once a year they would have America Week at McDonald's in Britain, and it was literally just they just added bacon to everything on the menu. You, America Week. You could bacon. drink a uh, diet tea, <laughs> and you get discounts uh, with extra sugar. Sweet tea. Uh, New York City. We're opening in the exact same fashion that we did here in the French movie, uh, the French film, with the character of Dell. Kevin Hart driving a very nice Ferrari, and he's got his passenger, a bearded Brian Cranston in it, um, weaving in and out of the streets of New York City in a very like, reckless fashion. Like a madman. And here's the thing where, uh, you know, movie making and movie watching has become such a complex, I guess it was always complex, but now with uh, with the advent of technology and how we're all interconnected, it, it kind of expands your your horizons and makes you aware of how just nothing exists in a vacuum. And so even though it's almost shot for shot, a replication of the French movie, number one, you're setting it in America. Number two, it's being watched by Americans. 
or whatever you want to call me, like a hybrid. You're an American. <laughs> I guess now, by now, you know. You got your uh, citizenship. Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about the experience of growing up in America. I mean, I've, I've by now, I've, the second half of my life has, has been spent in America. So I guess, you know, I do have that experience to draw from. Um, so the thing is, the, the experience of seeing a black man driving a white dude like a madman in traffic being stopped by the cops and then the cops slamming that black man down on the front of the car. It plays so very differently depending on all those little things. Like, is this happening in France? Is this happening in, in New York? Is it being watched by a European person? Is it being watched by somebody from America? Is it, So that was like the first thing that I thought just from the beginning of the movie. Or like, am I going to experience all the, the entire movie like this where it's I'm watching a carbon copy, but... Just because it's a different setting, it's completely different, a completely different experience. Uh, and thankfully, it was more than that. I mean, the movie just used that as a, as a springboard to do, uh, to basically deal with race in America in in the Trump years. As he's being arrested, though, the difference here is um, the Berger, MAGA hats. Neil Berger, the director. For those of you who don't really enjoy subtlety earth, earth wind and fire <laughs> oh well that i mean mistake number one real talk you know no we're not starting this off with september by earth wind and fire you don't need it you have kevin hart omar Sy was an unknown so you needed the backup of the, the music but he is kevin hart you just need just kevin let hart. him riff uh but yeah if you're a fan of subtlety i think neil Berger is not the director for you uh, i think he plays more to the the mainstream that kind of need uh you know, it, it, things would be a bit more obvious here, and you can't fault them for it. That's why this opening scene here, it plays out where they play the cops. It's a bit more, um, there's no suspense to it. You know it's just, you know, we're playing along here. We're wink, wink, nudge, nudge. As uh, Kevin Hart all but winks at him and tells him to fake a seizure on the spot. <laughs> uh, but that's, I think that's good too, because Cranston is not Philippe uh, from The Untouchables. Cranston... He he uh, gives you a different personality, even by saying the same line sometimes, or even being framed at the same shot as as in the in the original movie. With Brian Cranston, you need that wink. You need to make him complicit because Cranston is a less passive uh, uh, Philip than in the original. So he needs to be in 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 the con in the game. Uh, needs to be convinced. <laughs> I mean, he is well, a disabled person, so he is an, an aristocratic fat cat after all. Uh, he fights back a lot more than original Philip. Original OP. OP Phil. <laughs> uh, but much like in the French film, um, Philippe, Philip fakes a seizure so they can get out of the situation with the cops. Uh, they pull up to the emergency room and uh, go off. And then we're, we hear see a title card uh, six months earlier um, in which... Philip was released from the hospital uh, after a health scare. It's at this point we're introduced to his. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what she is to him. His his assistant? executive. I think he calls her his executive a lot. Of, okay. Several times during the movie. Uh, personal assistant. Yeah. So I guess it could be potentially executive to his estate as well. Nicole Kidman gracing us here as Yvonne. Uh, Nicole Kidman comes up a lot in here i'm trying to remember other times that she's great bewitched. bewitched obviously um not the same uh in terms of upbeat and fun and you know comedic but she definitely brings the powerhouse performance here yeah burger brought the big guns here uh, uh because there's i wouldn't say there's less female um uh, 
characters in this version, the American version, but it's more like they combine them all into the Nicole Kidman character. Kind of like to She's give a her composite more. character. <laughs> She's the rock in pain and gain. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she she gets all the tiny characteristics from the French movie, uh, different French female characters. They just added them up into Nicole Kidman to make a fully fleshed female character, which was what we really needed. Yeah. Uh, so she, here she gets an arc. She gets drama. And, and, and so does Philip, too, because, uh, I mean, this this sort of opening after the opening is him sort of chastising her for not letting him die. Yeah. He, I guess he, he's the ready Lieutenant to Lieutenant Danzer. <laughs> Yeah, he uh, he has a, a I guess everybody has signed an NDR. He's not supposed to be resuscitated after a certain point, mm-hmm. and and yet she took him to the hospital, and he's mad about that. Dell is uh, fresh out of prison and is looking for uh, a job, much like the Dries character in the the French film. He's just kind of going from place to place, getting signatures, uh, so he doesn't violate his parole and go back to prison, just to show that he's out there trying to find a job. He ends up uh, applying for this job unknowingly, thinking it's janitorial work. Right, it's a mix-up. But see, this is something. It, it reminds me a little bit of our experience with the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street remake, where it was almost as if they'd listened to the episode uh, that we did on the original, and then the remake sort of tried to address our concerns. Went back in time. Yeah, uh, there's some sort of weird time loop from contrarian fans, directors, <laughs> that are just like modifying their, their films. The, I remember complaining about the issues with, I just I just had a hard time figuring out how the, the French system worked as far as like, do you just get signatures? You just get assigned whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way in which Omar Sy ended up working for Philip or Philippe in the original was a little contrived. Here... It is 100% acknowledged that Kevin Hart is not supposed to be there. He just kind of gets off on the wrong floor, right? He is supposed to be there for a janitor job, but then he he ends up following the dude that's applying to be uh, Philip's caretaker and just assumes that that's where he's supposed to be. And they're very much aware pretty quickly that, that he's not supposed to be there. And then it just becomes a matter of Cranston deciding to take him on because Cranston has a death wish. Yeah. And uh, Cranston's character here is a, is a curmudgeon. It's played up almost for um, to the point of caricature. I have in my notes here, this especially, this scene, the montage of all these fucking dorks applying for the job. This movie establishes, if you've seen the French one, you, you're going to know that this is way more lighthearted. Even the music in the background is just, you know, like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> There's the guy that says, uh, I want to, I, I want to, how is it like where you end and I begin? I want to be we... your hands. And then the other guy <laughs> asked for an autograph. And Yeah. Because I... he's an author, which I appreciated again here. In the in the French version, I have no idea what that guy did. I just knew that he was in a wheelchair. Here, Cranston, I can tell you things about his character. I, I know exactly how he ends up getting into an accident. I know what he used to do for a living. I know how why he makes money, why, why he still has money. Uh it's a much more fleshed out character than in the original version. But, you know, no American remake would be complete if we didn't crank up the comedy and lightheartedness to, to a thousand on this. Because we're only dealing with some serious issues here. So why not allow hilarity to ensue? I mean, you have Kevin Hart after all. Why would you waste him <laughs> in a dramatic role? Uh, he barges in here. And I got a little ahead of myself on the notes because my response was... Uh, no, no pussy footing around. He gets offered the job on the spot. We, you know, let's get to this. Let's bingo bango. Not like that French bullshit. 
but he actually declines it. He comes in and uh, and just um, I don't know if it's a fit of hubris or I think it's more rebellion that uh, Phil, uh, Philip's trying to rebel against Devon Nicole Kidman's wishes for him and is like, "Hey, I'll give this guy the job." Right. He he just likes that that Kevin Hart in the in the French version. It's it's pretty subtle and almost not not well defined enough that that the reason that that Philippe likes Omar Sy is that oh well he doesn't treat him different differently you know mm-hmm. he was disrespectful to him the way that he would be disrespectful to somebody that's not in a wheelchair uh, but it was kind of very weird. curt right it, it was kind of weird and it was almost again it goes back to that the french version being so passive that guy here cranston he's already shown that he has character he, mm-hmm. we saw him complaining that he was still alive <laughs> so uh it really makes a much stronger impression when he decides to go against nicole kitsman's wishes and just hire this guy who's just an ass right uh uh kevin hart is a lot more crude when he's hitting on nicole kitman when he's just making observations about Cranston being in a wheelchair, but also what makes him a thousand percent more charismatic and more uh, sympathetic than Omar Sy is that he's actually in a hurry because he needs to go pick up his kid. Yeah. Omar Sy had no reason to, to be, to have a sense of urgency about anything. He just, his time was valuable. Yeah. He was just like, well, I need the signature, you know, but Kevin Hart is actually looking for a job. Mm-hmm. It's just that he also has to go pick up his kid. And before he leaves to pick up his kid, we do get the comedic uh, exchange of asking Philip to sign the paper. He said he can't. So he says, what about your boo? And looking at Nicole Kidman and you get Brian Cranston going, my boo. <laughs> She's not my boo. Uh, we get some character development of Kevin Hart. We see him visit his estranged family, his ex-wife and his son. Uh, in the looks like the projects that they live in. Um, he stole a copy of Huck Finn from Philip's residence and gave it to his child. A lot more relatable than uh, Omar Sy stealing the egg. So how many people know what a Fabergé egg is? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Fabergé. Fabergé. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we find he owes a ton of child support. Uh, he wants to be there to help his son and protect him, uh, but he's kicked out of his ex-wife's apartment and says, fucking hit the bricks. Uh, we then get Walter White dreaming about fucking. Uh, <laughs> he's <laughs> he's laying in bed, sweating up a storm. Okay, among other things, it's not a full-on sex dream. I mean, he's also dreaming of his accident, and he's uh, just staring at the the little. It was sudden. As the, the my point in st- stating that as graphically as I did was to establish how sudden the cut is to this. Um. Again, I appreciate the the humanity given to the Cranston character here. We never like, later on in the movie when, like in the original, they get into talking about sex and what turns Cranston on mm-hmm. and everything. Oh, it's coming. Oh yeah, <laughs> but it was I I believed it and I was satisfied. Whereas you might remember uh, when we we're talking about the French version, I felt that they left a lot of questions unanswered. That a question that I would believed Omar Sy would have asked. Whereas like here, they go the extra mile. Uh, Kevin Hart returns, uh, Dell, that is, to Phillips residence and says he'll take the job. And despite, you know, <laughs> two minutes earlier showing the lives he's left in shambles, he's now living the high life and uh, just kind of easily forgets about his previous life, at least for the moment. He, well, he comes back to it. Yeah. And I buy it because here w- with Omar Sy, 
the big thing was his mom kicked him out. Mm-hmm. And that's like, well, dude, I mean, you know, you should move on. You're an adult. You shouldn't be living with your mom and, and all the other kids there. Here, it's it, it, America is very good at doing this, at setting goals and setting expectations, give you like a pretty good idea of what the ticking clock is for a movie. So here, it's very specific, right? He owes child support. <laughs> he owes his... his uh, I guess his wife or ex-wife and his kid are living in a shitty apartment. There is a very concrete goal of, well, this this job is going to pay me. If, with that money, I can pay off child support. I can get them out of there. It's a very concrete uh, path to the end of the movie, to a happy ending. The French version is just like, well, Omar's I had nothing better to do. You know, It was either working for Philippe or hanging out with his friends. It, you know, Working for Philippe was not going to fix what happened with his mom. So I appreciate the nuts and bolts that are a lot more tighter in the in the American version. Uh, in the French version, it is the uh, assistant that the Dell or Dries character is lusting after. In this one, it's uh, Philip's physical therapist. Uh, is her name Maggie? Maggie. Maggie. Um, Maggie. Yep, the physical therapist that comes in. Um, but this more innocent. The, He's not the horn dog that uh, Omar Sy was. No, and and Karma does not come out to extract its revenge on Kevin Hart in this. Um, but we get him seeing how everything is going to work with Philip, how to stretch him out, how to uh, move his muscles, replace his catheter, uh, similar to the explanation that Dries has given in the French film. Um, difference being here is that... Dell, excuse me, is put on a three strike system by Nicole Kidman, and he okay, gets. I'm telling you, Americans are pretty good at telling you like what the rules are. <laughs> yeah, don't want to leave anything up to uh, <laughs> your own judgment or interpretation. So you get Nicole Kidman explaining the rules of baseball, which is fucking awesome. That's probably one of the highlights <laughs> of this movie. You know, like we said, if you have Kevin Hart on set, you got to have a wacky set piece of some sort. And wouldn't you know it, he's got a big old shower that he doesn't know how to use. And so we get two to three minutes of him trying to figure out how to use this fancy shower. And it goes awry. Uh, you know, this water is coming at him from all these different angles. And we get a Kevin Hart. Ah! Uh, he puts it in monsoon mode. Right? That's yeah. what happens. Uh, it's good, though, because we're maybe 30 minutes into the movie by now. And, and I needed a, a, a Kevin Hart that was more like what I'm used to. Right, I mean, we've had this is the Kevin Hart, the serious Kevin Hart that we never see. This is up till now, it's been Kevin Hart's Copland, mm-hmm. Kevin Hart's Insomnia, Kevin Hart's Truman Show. <laughs> this is just the Kevin Hart award bait performance, and he's been doing great. But you kind of miss the lightheartedness, especially because you know Cranston is is a is grumpy, and and Hart's been throwing one liners here and there, but they're kind of angry one liners. Um, it's if nothing else works in this movie for you, I think that the thing that you have to do is give. Kevin Hart props for going out of his comfort zone and and not making the mistake of wanting to emulate Omar Sy, right? Omar Sy was playing the jolly black dude, like the life of the party. And Kevin Hart wisely decides not to do that, but instead just play the angry black guy who he usually doesn't really play, at least not not with this intensity. This is his wrestler. Yes. Well, no. Wrestler is like 30 years from now. Right now, he's, you know, he's going up. Something bad's going to happen in his career. Well, he did get like the, he lost the Oscars. 
and now he's gonna be in t- fade into obscurity for a few years, and then when he comes back, he'll do his wrestler. Okay, yeah. So I'm trying to think if that's an analogy. What this would be barflies or diner? Or diner. Something. Yeah. <laughs> he's just angel get heart. Horrific plastic surgery. <laughs> uh, I miss Mickey Rourke. Uh, the next scene, we see Philip buying a painting at an art gallery in New York City. This is almost... Um, Verbatim. Yeah, the Michael Haneke thing you mentioned. The I was going to make the joke at the beginning that the you know some of this is funny games. Yep. It's like exact interpretations of what uh, the pre- the predecessor was. Their frames, like in Fight Club, their frames where he replaced uh, Kevin Hart with Amar side. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, he buys the painting. This scene goes almost exactly like the French... Uh, um, counterpart it does except there's more talking here not counterpart original right uh because as they're driving back maybe driving in like kevin hart gets to like talk about life and ask him questions uh there's a there's a lot of talking in this movie uh, i think americans generally are chattier than than europeans i guess are you french specifically and uh I was happy to see that difference. I mean, you'll see it even more uh, after they get high. Uh, on the drive back, he starts asking, you know, how can you put a price on art type of thing? Comes to find out that the book, the Huck Finn copy he took, was part of uh, Philip's collection that was left to him by his wife of originals that were all signed by the author. So uh, Dell realizes in this moment that he done screwed the pooch. And needs to get this back. So he goes and visits his ex-wife and explains. He first gives her a check uh, to begin paying back his child support. But then explains, hey, I need you to get that book back for me. And she gets very upset and says, you stole it. If you want it back, you got to get it back yourself. The side stress and the side tensions are kind of mounting around this. Right. We never got anything even close to this with the with the egg. The reverse egg. That was... Uh, you know, we never got a backstory on that egg. It was just it was just jewelry. But here, th- there's an emotional connection to the book, and, and there's stakes because he gave it to his son. It's not like he can just go pick it up from the safe box or whatever. Didn't Dries give it to his cousin? No. Did he just take it? I think because so, well, if 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 he did, we never saw him get it back. Mm. We just at the end of the movie, he kind of like pulls it out from his back pocket, <laughs> like he had it there the entire film. Takes it out of his shoe. Uh, more paragliding accident dreams. Uh, not so much with his wife this time, but obviously some nightmares going on for Philip. Uh, he's having a hard time, and uh, this is a scene where he kind of is going. Looks like he could potentially go out. I, it reminds. It, it's what I imagine. Uh, the introductory scene with him and Yvonne was a similar situation of where he couldn't breathe, and that's why she took him to the emergency room. Uh, Dell comes in and resuscitates him um, using an oxygen mask, knowing that he asked him not to, but exclaiming, I need this money, so you better wake up or I'm going to give you mouth-to-mouth. It's very, it's very direct. Mm-hmm. Again, very American. Omar Sy was just more like, I'm just going to tickle you until you laugh and you feel like living again. <laughs> Kevin Hart just shoving that oxygen mask on Brian Cranston's uh, face. The other thing is, this is I think this is the the uh, Travolta and Basic scene where uh, Kevin Hart is just walking around the house shirtless, and he is fucking ripped. I've never seen him like that. We get the shot of him asleep on the bed. I think it's that morning where he's got his shirt off, and Nicole Kidman does like the my word. <laughs> Doesn't know whether to turn away or walk further in the room. Uh, Dell takes Philip out for a stroll. This is where they they smoke some weed together. 
their chemistry has been bumpy up until this point, but nothing brings buddies together, and especially in American film, like getting high and going and getting fast food. A hundred percent. I mean, that is that is so that encapsulates friendship in America in a way that the Untouchables, I believe, did not capture uh, as far as the French equivalent, right? I mean, there's nothing in or many, 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 many French listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> I don't think there's anything in the Untouchables that you can point at and go like, yes, this is friendship in France, you know? But here, it's, of course, New York, middle of the night, they're high, they're ordered like 40 hot dogs, and they they share, they talk, about, well, I was telling you that they talk a lot in this movie, mm-hmm. they do, but not in a bad way. This is not Judd Apatow riffing. I mean, they're telling each other their backstories. They They're actually making themselves more interesting characters than the ones in the original. Yeah, we this is where um this is where he discusses what happened the, the accident. Right, he, yeah, and he then explains that his wife previous to the accident had been diagnosed with cancer and she basically had to take care of him in her waning years. It's that Cranston's Oscar clip. I mean, easily. He gets a single tear. Yes. Uh it's here we learn that Dell's basically trying to think of a business idea to get money from Philip. Right, because that's that's what Philip used to do. He wrote a book about lateral thinking and, yeah, and just how to monetize your ideas. Helping startup companies and business expansion. And one of Dell's ideas is an app where you can find local drug dealers. It would be called Ideal. Uh, we get the wacky catheter scene as the physical therapist is not is late, and so Kevin Hart needs to assist Brian Cranston accordingly. Uh, removes his catheter, replaces it, Hell of a set piece. Cranston gets an erection. Nicole Kidman walks in. It just I, I mean, mean, you hit all the beats. It's the kind of the sequence that you want in a remake, right? Because it ends and you're like, how was this not in the original? <laughs> this is where we learn though the the ear fetish cuz his penis still works. Um but Obviously, there's no sensation or feeling there, so he asks him, you know, kind of how you get off type of thing. Yeah. It's, and he calls his ears an erogenous zone. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool because, again, you're it's it's kind of like similar dynamic to what happens in the French version. But here, it's very American, and Cranston is playing this kind of very American character where you may call Americans prude, but really, when it comes to talking about your dick... We're all pretty <laughs> non-prudish. And so, of course, Cranston is just having a grand old time saying the word penis and just talking about what gets him off, uh, which either leads to him getting an erection or <laughs> reinforces the erection. But this is what I was talking about when he I, does when I tell said, him. He's like, well, if you just stop playing with it, maybe <laughs> right? it'd go down. Uh, this, this scene doesn't leave any stones unturned when it comes to just what gets Brian Cranston off. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I was missing in the French version. More replicas, uh, or more replicating, I should say, of the French film with uh, Kevin Hart getting uh, two women of the night to come up and uh, massage Philip's ears. They go to the opera. This is very, very similar to the scene in The Untouchables. The only difference being, in the end, turns out Dell really enjoyed himself and uh, gives the opera a standing ovation. It's, it's pretty smart because... Uh, you know, it builds up to to giving Kevin Hart something that's not going to compete with Omar Sy's dancing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's great because I was honestly the first. This is my second time watching this movie. The first time I watched it, I was dreading that birthday party sequence <laughs> because I was like, "It's for all my problems with the Untouchables, 
what's untouchable is the dance sequence. And Kevin Hart, there's no way that he can no. he can live up to that. So I was glad that they gave him a different way of, of just making Philip happy, you know, and gave him a connection with the opera and all that stuff. Dell also starts painting, much like Dries in the, the French version. Um, we don't really get the reveal of the painting for a few scenes. Dell learns of Philip's writing to a woman named Lily. This all very much in line with the uh, the French original. Except for the part where here in America, they know to use Google. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, the time travel theory applies where it is not that hard to figure out anything about this woman or even to realize that obviously she Googled him. Yeah. There is no mystery, and that's good because this movie is set in the present. And he has a certain level of celebrity, too. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> He's an author. Through this, we get Kevin Hart and Nicole Kidman. Uh, this, again, was when you have Kevin Hart on set, just let him go. We get like a, a 90s stand-up comedian scene of uh, him talking about the type of men Nicole Kidman likes. And I bet he's got a beard. Where'd my cat go? Oh, it's in my beard. It's very Paula Poundstone. But it's good because I think that it's obviously Kevin Hart is not trying to to do to actually do stand up. He's being really silly and really goofy because you know you're not gonna waste like really good material on, on Nicole Kidman character <laughs> Kidman's character who, because she's just she's kind of a grump as even probably worse than Philip here. You know she's really uptight and she doesn't find him amusing at all. So so I think his strategy was was acceptable he was just making really dumb jokes because you can't go wrong with those <laughs> it was seinfeld shit <laughs> what's the deal with grape nuts no grapes no nuts uh, what's the deal with philip why why can't he walk <laughs> jesus in the next scene we see uh dell as well as we the audience become aware of the poetry that um philip has been writing for lily in this scene, very interesting direction by Brian Cranston to act completely different than everyone else, and to act as though he's in a different movie than everyone else. He's actually acting like he's like in a, a play. He, he's acting with a very theater type presence, while the other two are like, "Hey, we're in a movie." Uh, but Kevin Hart calls him on it, which is probably the greatest thing about it, because uh, Cranston just goes too far. And I believe that what happened is. Because he gets into character to dictate these letters, mm -hmm. and he never got out of character, and and then Kevin Hart calls him at the, when he says something like "nor her eye," <laughs> yeah, he's like "nor her eye," <laughs> or you know Shakespeare play, uh, very similar to the the French original, also in that uh, he takes the phone. He's like, she obviously sent you her number for a reason. Calls her, just puts the phone up to Philip. Uh, it's a voicemail. He leaves. It says, "Hey, call me back. We can talk." Um, not to jump too far ahead, but this is probably one of the biggest differences uh, with the French version and one of the biggest improvements, which is that this action, uh, when Omar Sy did it, I remember thinking, saying probably in the episode, he should have gotten fired for this. This is crossing the line. The The fact that he takes the phone and then forces his employer to make a phone call that he was not emotionally ready to do, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. And, and he kind of locks out that it pans out. But here... In this movie, we get to see actual consequences for doing that kind of stuff. I mean, later on, because of what happens, because of this phone call, it basically costs him a job. And, and he ends up unemployed because of doing bullshit like this, which is great. Uh, in the next scene, his painting, he reveals to Philip and his uh, staff. Uh, it's 
it's an interesting painting. Most of them kind of just laugh it off, but Philip says, you know, there's potential here. There's something interesting here. Do you remember the name? Bravery. It's, what is bravery? What is bravery? <laughs> um, Dell takes Philip for a ride, shows him around his neighborhood, introduces him to his son. They have a, a crack up of a day. When he goes to drop his son off, though, things quickly break down as he says, hey, that book I gave you, I need it back. Uh, his son sees right through it, knows what's going on, and goes and hands the book back to Philip and said, I didn't know this was yours when he gave it to me. Um, and then for all of the the hubbub that was made about how important these books were, Philip is pretty cool with it. How awesome was that? That subversion of expectations? Because I thought that this was going to be where, where it, like in most movies of this kind, a uh, uh, contrived uh, argument between the two of them was going to take place and then there was going to be tension when really what you want to do is just just move on and let's get to the date, right? But no, it actually, it, the scene works to, if, if there's conflict with anybody, as with the kid, right? It kind of fucks up his relationship with his son who had had a pretty good day up till then. But when it comes to Philip, you you get a glimpse of, of a different person and maybe... Maybe the Philip from the beginning of the movie would have fired him for this, but it, this one is just like, well, books are meant to be read, and it's almost like he realizes that it's a little silly to hang on to these really old books <laughs> just for display. It is Philip's birthday, and they get back to his loft, and there's a surprise party waiting for him. Uh, tensions are already a bit hot between he and uh, Dell, um, but this kind of just pushes Cranston, Philip, over the edge with his uh, anger. They go into a back room where kind of all of his gifts are, and I think it's his study, his office. And uh, he just cuts a promo on Nicole Kidman, saying I specifically request none of this. Because uh, some of the people there, he, we, it's already been established he doesn't care for, like the guy who lives below him. Yeah, um, this movie has a version of the of the the neighbor, I guess he was also a neighbor, right? Or a mm -hmm. friend or something, yeah. the, which when we're watching the French version, I said he's probably racist. And in the American version, he's 100% racist. <laughs> There's no doubt. He hits him with the, you're putting us in danger by having him <laughs> in the building. That So he tells Nicole Kidman, tell everyone to leave. Uh, she goes out and then he asks, Dell, were you aware of this? Did you, is this your shit? Did you set this up? And uh, Kevin Hart hits him with the, I'm sorry that you're rich and you have to hang out with all your friends that are giving you a bunch of nice things. This was the moment where Katrina Lopez or whoever, that quote that I read, where she was like, how dare he? He's in a wheelchair. You don't talk to him like this. Um, it's pretty cool. The movie goes full on America here where it's just Kevin Hart is the voice against white privilege. And, uh, and Brian Cranston just calls him out on his bullshit as well and goes like, well, I'm sorry that uh, one day of taking your kid out to have ice cream doesn't make up for all the neglect. <laughs> yeah, that line was deep. Uh, and so Kevin Hart throws a bottle down, and I think this is, I don't think, I know this is helping give Philip a release of some sort. At this point, he just starts telling uh, Dell the things he wants broken and thrown on the ground. And uh, I think at one point, Brian Cranston fully releases during this scene. I was going to say, the sexual tension is palpable. It, someone must have been rubbing his ears because, you know, we just get these close-ups of... I'm not making this up, Alex. There is a shot during this sequence that starts on Brian Cranston's crotch. I Oh, really? I thought I was watching it on my phone, and uh, and I actually rewinded it. I was like, holy shit, he went there. Hal, I think that's his name on Malcolm in the Middle. I was going to say, we see Hal's O-face. He just, oh. He's screaming, too. He he's, sounds he's like Solid allowed, Snake uh... dying at one point. <laughs> 
and actually a really comedically well timed. Nicole Kidman comes back in and is just like, "What the fuck?" And uh, Brian Cranston just said, "Dell made a mess." <laughs> uh, we already touched on it, but the white neighbor uh, is worried about someone with a rap sheet being in there, and he thinks he's putting them all in danger. Uh, Cranston lets him know that he's well aware of his past. This literally cuts right into him looking up at the new painting, the white snob, and saying, oh, this is interesting, you know? Do you think it'll appreciate? Um, I mean, spoiler alert, he ends up buying the painting for $50,000. I mean, if you've seen the original, you knew that that's what was going to happen. But this guy, I guess the process by which this guy ends up buying the painting, even though it's just like maybe a couple more beats in the story, uh, it does so much more to sell you that idea. Mm -hmm. Because you actually see the process, the conversation he has with Cranston, where Cranston really hooks him and then slowly reels him in uh, as opposed to, I think the French version, you just kind of in the background, they make the deal. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it was, it it's was like a lot a, more satisfying. they're off on the side of uh, yeah. his birthday party. And yeah. Um, this is uh, also uh best joke of the movie is during this birthday party sequence, which is when uh, I think right after that, Cranston is looking for uh, Kevin Hart and he finds him. He's talking to this really old lady, and the old lady turns to him and is like, yeah, I'm talking to him. We're talking about what it's like to be black. Yes, and Kevin Hart's face at this is very, very good. Uh, and um, at this point, he asks him how his ideal app's coming along. So they go, and once again, classic American trope. They come out of a room with smoke billowing behind them, both with their eyes barely open, laughing at the wind. You know, and then they come out and... Uh, it becomes a gr a communal dance, a group dance, because as you mentioned, there ain't no way anyone in this movie's topping Omar size dance sequence to Boogie Wonderland. Right. Instead, uh, well, even before he breaks out the who is it? Bruno Mars. That's Bruno mm -hmm. Mars. Uh, but even before that, the way they bridge it is the the opera people that have been uh, playing for the party. They're packing up, but then super high Kevin Hart. It's like, no, 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 no don't go. Stay. Here. I want to direct you. He starts and conducting. He starts conducting, walks them through like, I don't know, five or six musical numbers. And, uh, and then I guess he starts playing the, his music, but that's, so that gives you, a, uh, uh, I think it's better than in the original one. Omar Sy is just basically, well, now I want to dance. I want to throw my party. Whereas like here it's, it starts with him acknowledging what Philip likes mm -hmm. and making it his own and then introducing his music and making everybody else dance. It's not, oh, well, now it's the Kevin Hart show and I'm just going to take over the party. So the dancing continues. Uh, Nicole Kidman gets on the floor, cuts a rug. Uh, they even get um, Philip himself out there just to kind of soak up the local atmosphere on the dance floor. During all this, Lily calls back and arranges a date with Philip. Uh, so his birthday has gone pretty damn well. We cut to uh, Dell taking him to the date with Lily. Uh, this is where Philip gives him the check for 50K for his uh, painting. Kind of just bluntly tells him, art's not your thing, but this is for you to invest in a, a business. This is, you know, the, the capital that you'll need for it. Again, much better end to that subplot than in the original. Where, I mean, basically, Marseille never really acknowledged, it's never acknowledged that he's not going to make a living as a painter, right? In the original, when he gives him the check, Omar says like, oh, well, I guess this is my thing now. <laughs> Here, Cranston stops it and lets everybody, Kevin Hart, the audience, know that, no, this is the end of this joke. <laughs> so did you know that Juliana Margulies played Lily? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, that's where I was going. I lost track of my notes here. Juliana Margulies, Nina from her run on Scrubs. That's, 
I know she, ER was her big thing. Yeah, right? I was gonna say Nurse Hathaway, Nurse something. She's she's the good wife. Really. Uh, well, I'll, I'll always know her as being Nina from Scrubs because she had like a three or four episode arc with that, and it was she was very good in it. So when she, she came hook up in, with a uh, Zach Braff. Yeah, that's the whole joke. She's like super domineering over him, <laughs> and he can't do anything to resist her. It's if you didn't know, Scrubs was at one point in time a good television show. <laughs> And people didn't hate Zach Braff. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Uh, but no, I was not aware it was her in the scene. And this is like easily the most tense turn away, watch through your fingers scene in it. Because there's nothing like inherently uh, like in your face. I was kind of giving this movie some shit for lack of subtlety earlier. This is definitely a subtle scene, but it's there's just this undercurrent of like boiling uh, tensions. It is. I like that this movie is not afraid of uh, really giving us that tension because that was something else that we commented when we were talking about the original. That it was a pretty easygoing movie with almost no conflict. Whenever there was a conflict, it was resolved like within five seconds. <laughs> uh, here, they had a pretty intense argument at the uh, during the birthday party in the ongoing. And the movie is not like in, in the original where uh, Omar Sy's family is brought up. Every now and then here, uh, Kevin Hart's family is a recurring issue that always keeps you worried about uh, what's happening with them. And then this date, the French version completely pussies out of showing us that. Mm -hmm. The French version just has Philip, you know, bail on her. Yeah. Uh, Americans are not afraid of this. <laughs> we live for comedies about awkward dating. This is you could have replaced Brian Cranston with Ben Stiller in this in the, for this sequence. It would have been perfect. Uh, but yeah, she said she looked up on him. She knew that he was a quadriplegic beforehand, uh, and you get the sense that Lily Juliana Margulies has her own set of issues because she brings up her therapist and how you know, how they've talked about this. Yeah, and how it's not what she expected, and it's too much for her because she keeps noticing things like food that gets on him or you know his limp, limp hand hanging off the side of his wheelchair there's uh, a there's a deleted scene you know there's a deleted scene in the criterion that's just a session uh, you know where she's like do you think that you are attracted to men who are just out of reach <laughs> do you tend to get into relationships with brains but not with bodies she even hits him with the maybe we can just be friends and that's where uh philip cranston just loses it and says fuck this i'm getting out of here uh, you had mentioned earlier what you believed his Oscar scene was and relaying the tale of his accident and his wife to him. To me, this is the Oscar scene because I've never heard a line written more for uh, an award than when uh, he's trying to leave and the maitre d' or whomever spills the tea on him. And he states, uh, you know, did we burn you? Are you okay? I can't feel anything. I don't feel anything. God, it's to quote you, my friend, chef's kiss. <laughs> After that, Cranston was like, all right, I'm done. Kevin Hart, you can finish the movie because I'm. this is just, I peaked. Go back to the loft. He and Dell, they have a fight. Um, Dell explains, you know, I've been rejected by women too. And, you know, uh, I was just trying to help you, that type of thing. And I forget exactly how he phrases it, but basically Cranston's able to phrase it that you stole this from me. You know, I was supposed to do it my way, but you stole my moment from me because you're a thief. And he just no, kinda... no, no. Hart, Kevin Hart says, oh, because I'm a thief. I oh. stole it because I'm a thief. It's just classic. It, it was like an the real the real big argument between in a couple. Like, the real couple's argument is happening here. Mm. <laughs> That's 
we've all been there when you're just angry and you say the wrong thing and then the person you're arguing with takes that and makes it even worse even though you didn't mean it (laughs) what do you mean you people (laughs) so he gets fired from his job with uh philip uh dell at this point we get a bit of a montage uh in which he we see that he uses that check he was given to buy um looks like a townhome in a nicer part of town uh and Gives the keys to his ex-wife and child, trying to kind of make good on it. Uh, we see that he gets a job helping uh, do repair and uh, construction of wheelchairs. Does he get a job, or does he, or is that his company? I didn't even think of that. I I thought it was I don't know maybe because they kept talking about him uh, just creating a business. I just thought that that was his thing. Yeah. He also seemed to be in charge. He was giving directions to the guys that were actually building the chairs. Uh, I don't know. I thought that was the movie paying off the long running gag of uh, what what is he gonna do for a living? That would make sense. Yeah, I mean, he definitely does better with the with the money than Omar side. Yeah, that would make sense of his business because he's like on the floor. He's clearly in charge, right. telling people what to do. Yeah, good sense of deduction. Um, Maggie, the physical therapist, comes to Dell, explains things are bad. He won't listen to anybody. He won't eat. His new uh, life auxiliaries are just. Very bad, you know. We need you to come, kind of save the day. Uh, so Dell comes in, sees Philip there with his big beard, and this is where we go to the beginning of the movie. Um, the end is the beginning, is the, the end. end. <laughs> Smashing pumpkins. Uh, this is where uh, Billy Corgan takes him parasailing. Yes, inside uh, Batman's helmet, which is somehow <laughs> Gotham. Uh, they drive out to the country, uh, somewhere on the outskirts of New York. This all, of course, to go paragliding. This was set up by... Uh, it's funny because it seems like it was set up by Dell, but then... But then he's surprised when they have a paraglider yeah, for him. Yeah, uh, Much like the French version, it looked like, uh, as best I could tell, that looked pretty practical, as though they were actually doing it. Uh, That's really Kevin Hart pissing his pants up there. Well, that was... Yeah, the his reaction seemed genuine, just like... Uh, Omar Sy's in the French version it's like this is fucking scary because that definitely <laughs> looks like something that would be terrifying um, it's it's such a simple thing but the placement of this sequence in, in this version the American version as basically a celebration of them being friends again mm-hmm. whereas in the French version this happens before they they split uh, and also the French version has kind of like a weak sauce and to his employment, you might remember, it's just like, hey, I think it's time for you to go take care of your nephew or whatever. I, I remember it, I never bought it. It was like here, they got into a fight and then they made up and then went to celebrate by doing something that makes right. Philip feel we alive again. We needed that again. fucking conflict. This is America, damn it. We got to yeah. gotta put some sriracha on it. <laughs> we live in conflict. <laughs> we need to, if there's no conflict in the movie, then it just feels fake. Uh... Again, you want to talk about almost exact remakes. We get a pretty damn close shot for shot uh, reimagining of the beard shaving scene, complete with Brian Cranston in a uh, Hitler mustache. But he at least does the the chaplain face, like the from side to side. So he's more, and this is through the entire movie. Cranston participates more. I mean, I've said it before, but there's more. Whereas in the in the original, Philippe just kind of sits there. And let's Omar Sy do whatever he wants. Cranston is actually suggesting things and throwing comments. At some point, he's like, oh, I look sexy. It, it, there's oh, a lot he, more he give and take. He puts the handlebar mustache on him. He says, ah, I look badass. <laughs> I um, am the one who knocks. <laughs> and then uh, 
we're coming down. The movie's reached its end. It's uh, it's reached its crescendo. As uh, I-, I guess this is just a summer home or something that Philip has, and he's just looking out over the water. And uh, similar to the end of the French one, Dell explains, "I gotta go, but there's someone here to see you." So you're you're like rubbing your hands, waiting for Julianne Margulies to come back in, saying, "I'm sorry, I talked to my therapist. We figured it out." And I think you see a hand, and then you see Cranston's reaction first. And he's like, I've missed you. And lo and behold, it is Miss Australia herself, Nicole Kidman. Oh, because... Yvonne, back to save the day. Right, because she had left. While mm-hmm. while Kevin Hart was away, she... Brian Cranston it became was... too much for her. Yeah, he became a complete asshole, so she, had, she just... She had enough. And then we do this... I don't know why it stuck with me more than any other shot of the movie. The shot of Kevin Hart walking away just like Omar Sy, looking back over his shoulder up into the window and then smiling and then fade to black. They are friends to this day. <laughs> Nicole Kidman is there to, I guess, spend the rest of her life with Brian Cranston. God bless them both. It is probably, in a movie that's not very subtle, the, the greatest subtle achievement is how... When you get to this point and you look back, you're like, yeah, I can see it. I remember it's it's like when uh, TV shows will do this, where they'll remind you of how you got to a point in that relationship by showing you clips from the entire season. Yeah. And you see all the little smiles and nods that these two characters had. And so here in your mind, you see all the little smiles between uh, Nicole Kidman and Brian Cranston, which count for a lot because Nicole Kidman is generally pretty serious in this movie. So anytime you see her smile... Or you see, you see her loosening up like when she's dancing, and she mm-hmm. kind of dances with Cranston. He's moving his his wheelchair, or you know, they were talking about the the letters that he's writing. Um, it was a pretty funny moment uh, where Kevin Hart is telling him, "You need to be more direct with how you talk," and then she starts helping him write, you yeah. know, contribute stuff. Uh, I don't know. It's it's all I buy it that she cared for him and. She's kind of she's already been doing what Juliana Margulies couldn't do, which is take care of him. And, and obviously, she likes him. I guess the big reveal at the end is that we didn't know how much she liked him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, what Cranston's gonna say? No, <laughs> you're Nicole Kidman. I'm Brian Cranston. <laughs> this shouldn't work, but it does. This I believe that we can make this work. Uh, and that's that. It takes us home. Ends just on as happy note as the uh, French original, but took us a different road to get there with a bit more rewarding points along oh, the way. I was a little bummed that uh, just like the French original version ended with just a little clip of the real people. Mm-hmm. Kind of bummed me that this movie didn't end with a clip of Omar Sy and uh, <laughs> the, the French guy. Francois, Clou- Francois. Clouzette. Yeah, just fishing. Just really. watching it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. It says, Dell uh, started a successful career in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> uh, and no, and Dell would go on to host the Oscars. <laughs> Those January releases, they they just never They're know what's so coming. So optimistic. <laughs> All right, are you ready for real talk? Most definitely. Maggie says she's uh she's running late. Okay. It can wait. Well, it says it can't. It says I got to change a crazy straw. 
Why don't they have a self-changing catheter? Okay, business idea. What if I told you that I can create a self-changing catheter? I would ask where your biomedical engineering degree was from. Look, Dell, just find something you love doing and then find a way to scale it. I mean, what are you really good at? Well, it's clearly not this. You know, can we just not talk? Especially when I feel like I'm in the worst porno ever. It's no big deal. I mean, it's no big deal. You ever touched another man's, uh... What, you can't even say the word? I can say the word. Well, say it. No. Just say it. I don't want to. Penis? Stop it. Okay, fine. Jeez. Done. Young Merlin's got the sword. So that would make my penis the stone, then? Can you stop saying that word? Just using your analogy. Stop saying the word. I'm asking you. Okay. It's not helping me. Okay. All right, so I'll take this out. And then I, um, I got to pinch to pinch the head, put it in. All right? Just letting you know what's going on. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's do it. This don't look like it's going to fit, man. That's what she said. And we are recording for Real Talk for The Upside. All right. What a movie. What a movie, do you think? Because we watched The Untouchables two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the that two-week stretch helped this movie or hurt it? Helped. Well, I probably would have disliked it even more if we watched it right afterwards. The comparison would have been just stronger? I'm trying my absolute best to just critique it on its own for its own merit uh-huh. and try to not neglect but compartmentalize how much I like the French one. Mm-hmm. Basically trying to act like I've never seen it. I mean, it's really hard to do, but... It's, I mean... I had that problem with Nightmare on Elm Street because we did it back to back. Opposite feelings. The autumn of remakes was a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, the Upside, once again, directed by Neil Berger, who uh, Greg Turkington has a uh, uh, a fictional alter ego that's Neil Hamburger. So when I first read that, I was like, wait, 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 what? Um <laughs> Who directed, as I mentioned, The Illusionist, Limitless, Divergent, not necessarily a whole, he doesn't have a filmography of Bang. Scorsese, we're not dealing with here. Um, How does he feel about the Marvel Universe? (laughs) Has anybody asked him? Probably like, fuck yeah. (laughs) And uh, it was released again on January 11th, 2019, about a year after it was supposed to be released. Budget of a bit under forty million, box office return of a little bit over one hundred and twenty million. So definitely, definitely made a good chunk of change. Did not come close to the uh, near half billion that the uh, French original had uh, had made. The uh, inspiration for it. Um, Do you think it would have if it had been released when it was first made? Uh, I don't know. It. It's. I mean, The Untouchables was so much based on hearsay. Or not hearsay is not the proper term I'm looking for, but word of mouth. That's the expression I'm looking for. Right. Um, I'm just not sure I could see this getting the same kind of traction. I wonder if there is, there has to be a section of moviegoers 
that is that will hear about kind of like what you were joking about at the beginning of the first segment that they hear about an acclaimed European movie and they're like, I'm not going to read the subtitles. I'm just going to wait for the American remake. Right. But if you wait too long to make that remake, then they just forget about it. The and window they don't, closes. Right. So maybe, I don't know how many, how much of that makes, uh, makes the box office of a remake of a European movie. But I would imagine most of those people did not show up to opening weekend of the the upside. If <laughs> yeah. they were aware of the Untouchables, they probably had forgotten about it or had better things to do on that weekend in January. Yeah, and um, what I'm saying I is think, we're, we're talking about Kevin Hart fans and Brian Cranston fans showing up for this. Yeah, I think that's part of it too. Is the unique casting in it is because that's something to take into context with the Untouchables. No one fucking knew who Omar outside of France. No one knew who Omar Sire. Francois were it was all just like hey you gotta go see this movie and with this when you release movies in America especially with A-listers like Kevin Hart Nicole Kidman and Brian Cranston then then it entails people have these oh I don't like him I don't like their movies or that type of thing and so you deal with a it's a different beast altogether right but also I mean I guess January release just generally means oh, that's that- kiss of death Right. Unless you're Paul Blart Mall Cop. <laughs> right. I don't think they released it in January thinking, oh, there's no competition. We might be the January movie. It was more like, when the fuck can we dump this <laughs> to where it will hurt, hurt us the least? Uh, but let's say it was, if it had been a Christmas release, do you think it would have made more money? Because it, it's a crowd pleaser. It, oh, God. Yeah. It, it, uh, it, I'll say this about it. It doesn't shy away from what it is. It aggressively it, it pursues that, you with that its, pleasing of the crowd. It, it it waits in the bushes, jumps out, and mauls you with its desire to please you as an audience. It's like Brian Cranston's erection in this movie. It's just, it'll be there. Oh. <laughs> uh, I guess interesting trivia. There wasn't too much. Uh, Chris Tucker, Jamie Foxx, Chris Rock, and Idris Elba were considered to play the role of Dell. Colin Hidris Elba. Yeah. Completely different vibe. Let's go. Get the fuck up. Colin Firth was attached to the lead role at one point. Uh Jessica Chastain and Michelle Williams were considered for the, the lead female role. Um man. <laughs> Jessica Chastain. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was gonna say I, I wouldn't have wanted to see her in this, but she was in an X-Men movie and fucking it this year, so that's where we're at right now. I mean, uh, hat trick. Yeah. You open with the, the upside. Yeah. I mean, before we get too far into it, uh, with that being said, it was at 41%. It was a rotten movie. But that being said, it means that close to every other person that saw it enjoyed it. So what were the peeps saying? All right. So I got four quotes from Rotten Tomatoes website. Fresh quotes this time. Uh, Carla Renata from the Kirby Film Critic. Uh, at the end of the day, the upside will leave you feeling great about life. If you have a bucket list, you better get started on it like yesterday. <laughs> All right. Bucket list. Watch a movie with Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart on screen at the same time. Check. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying that they were both in the movie The Bucket List. And I was like, <laughs> wait, 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 what? Uh, that's a remake I would love to see. <laughs> Just give it another 30 or 40 years. Uh Ruth Fang. Five. Uh, Ruth Fang from the new paper, Singapore, says, Heart actually shows some heart here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Amanda Sink from The Hollywood Outsider. The Upside is a beautiful tale about the fragility of humanity and the healing powers of friendship. It's not not that. No. Right? That that's accurate. And finally, Tara McNamara from Common Sense Media. Charming Heart Cranston Disability Dramedy glorifies pot use. All right, that's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot in there. Uh Honestly, after talking about it in the first half, I am not now disliking it as much as I did when it was over. I'm, it's not good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because honestly, it, I was afraid that we were we were gearing up for another uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 discussion where I was going to have to. Well, unless you say something fucking asinine like it's better than Untouchables. It's not better than Untouchables. Okay. Oh, come on, Alex. It's not even better than The Untouchables by Brian De Palma. <laughs> Uh, but 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 I think it's better than bad. I I, I it's actually better than I thought it was gonna be. It's I'll even say Alex, it's good. If it didn't have the albatross hanging around its neck of being a remake of an amazing French movie, we would be like, wow, this is actually pretty decent. So in the things I was trying to find that weren't me comparing it to the Untouchables. Cranston's acting is incredibly inconsistent through this. Like, you think so? I... Yeah, it, it seems like he is really on in some scenes, <laughs> and then other scenes he could be anywhere else in the world. Um, Kevin Hart, I was most impressed with because despite them making sure, because it's Kevin Hart, I've saying this in the first portion, I mean this, they're gonna use him to do something wacky and funny, uh-huh. but they showed pretty good restraint for the most part we get a few comedic set pieces with him but uh there wasn't like one part of him like bah, bah, uh. yeah he i that was really to me the clear standout much like in the untouchables omar sai is just mm-hmm. the big revelation it's a great movie but it probably the greatest thing about it is that omar sai just took the world by storm or at least the world of the people that watched it yeah uh, and here, to me, it was something similar. When I went to watch it, I didn't have high expectations. And I certainly did not expect Kevin Hart to really not just win me over, but have me cheering for him uh, in the way that I did after you know I was done with the movie or throughout the movie. Because I think he really... It's not like I'm extremely familiar with the filmography. I'm extremely familiar with the trailers for his filmography. And, <laughs> you know, the Kevin Hart persona is definitely not what you get here. Here, he's... He's taking it Reserved. seriously, yeah. you know. That, I mean, no, that's. I'm not saying that he doesn't take his comedic roles seriously, but I'm just saying that the character here is not a clown. He's no. he feels like a flesh and blood person, and he he has issues, and I buy those issues when he's when he's sad, when he's angry. Like I I get it. I I completely buy it. Um, and he he's also funny without resorting to just the shtick. Yeah. You know, I think that there's some moment that reaction, I was not getting contrarian's corner that uh, we were talking about what it means to be black. His reaction to that line was so funny. It was really funny. Um, and it's, it's funny. You kind of brought up that sequence. Cause that, that was going to kind of, I was going to springboard from that to my next point in the movie of one thing I can compliment on it. Aside from that, part the what it is to be black in america and then the clear racist neighbor or whatever it does as good of a job as the untouchables did about not trying at least in my opinion again i'm a white dude 
but it doesn't try to beat you over the head with the difference with them racially. It's just like I think that it it does it more than you're than you think, but it doesn't. It, it and I actually think it goes overboard a little bit, but not in a way that made me angry. I actually my main not fear, but my my main guess, I guess when. When I got the hint that you were not liking, I was like, "Oh man, Alex is gonna complain about how they just keep bringing up race." But it's mostly, but it's mostly jokes. And what happened this time, which didn't happen the first time I watched it, but on this rewatch, mm-hmm. I got that feeling uh, that you know when people complain about, let's say, Green Book, just like a movie. This is better w- than Green Book. Yes, I agree. <laughs> uh, but just the idea, th- there's like some stereotypes that are just prominent prevalent on this type of story and one of them is just the white dude that helps the black dude be more cultured Mm -hmm. and so the added subplot of suddenly oh now he enjoys opera uh i was like i could see how people would be like ah come on that's a little that's a little condescending yeah but but i buy it because i don't know i like the characters and i'm not seeing them for the most part in the movie i'm not seeing them as like oh black and white and this is the, the the dynamic you know to me it's just Two different walks of life, and you know, like we did with the, with the original. The movie's not subtle about anything, so maybe I was just tricked into thinking that it's not what it is. <laughs> Where I stand by the Untouchables specifically, I stand by that I don't really feel there's any racial divide in that movie, I, not intentionally at least, because the whole reason, well, especially after watching this one, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's not like, yeah, there's no character in the Untouchables that's like, I don't want to live with a black person. <laughs> um, well, even uh, the whole thing in the Untouchables is like. The, the, the directors just liked Omar Sy. Right. So, like, we'll just, he's going to be our guy. Well, I think that maybe. The, now I'm getting pissed because, like, now it's like that automatically forces the perspective that they cast the black and white just based on the fact that it was black and white in the first one. Well, I think so. I think yeah. that they cast Kevin, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I I would imagine they cast Kevin Hart because it would have been kind of an uproar if they'd cast somebody who wasn't black. You know, especially yeah. if they cast a white dude, you know, it's like, why are you? Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. Why are um, you making this? <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I think I said it on the, on the last episode, on the Untouchables episode, where uh, I made the reference probably about how, well, if it was said in America, you can, you would have to address it, especially America in yeah. the year 2019 or 2018 or whatever. And so I think they addressed it enough. There is a moment, it's, it's almost, I was going to say, blink and you miss it when, uh, Kevin Hart and Nicole Kidman are having like one of their earlier interactions and she says something and he goes like, oh, well, he basically says, are you saying this about me because I'm racist? And she just says, no, I'm saying this about you because you're not competent, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, it's just a brief moment where race is brought up and uh, then and then it's put away. But it's, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that it would be disingenuous to expect a conversation of this sort to take place in America today and not somehow bring up race. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I actually appreciated that. I think that's what I, you said in the Untouchables Real Talk, too, because um, obviously we don't live in France, so we don't know if the tensions right. are quite as high over there, but the way that movie was presented, it's just like, here's this movie with people. <laughs> exactly. And here it's, yeah, I, now I'm starting to come around to kind of what you're saying. Now there's here's this movie, hey, there's this black dude that works for this white guy type thing. Yeah, I mean, he definitely doesn't let... Either of them let race define them or define their relationship, but there, when there are a few bumps that I think are, if nothing else, intensified because one is black and one is white, yeah, and they're surrounded by white people, uh, 
but I, I mean, I, I actually, I appreciate it that I think it's it's an asset more often than it is a, a hindrance in the movie. Uh, one one thing in that that I found funny, not to do with anything with race, but uh, talking about the intense lack of subtlety. One, it really did annoy me in the opening scene because that him, um, he's having a seizure and he looks at him and like basically tells him to do it. And Brian Cranston's like, see, I saw Hugh Grant playing the role in that moment because I could just see him rolling his eyes. And oh, dear, because uh, that was the first time I saw the Untouchables because he does. There's no there's not that like moment where he like winks at. Uh, Philippe to start faking a seizure. So when it cut to him, like filming at the mouth, it's like, holy shit, what's actually going on here? Right. So that kind of kills the opening. But what I was going to say that the um, insistence on making sure that you don't respect your audience's intelligence at all, the, uh, the weed smoking each time, because in the untouchables, it's just, it, there's not much there. They just pass a joint back and forth and like their conversation. That's expands. it. Yeah. Here you got to have the smoke billowing behind them. They got to go to get some fast food and stuff like that. And but that said, I really like the scene at the fast food, like the hot dog scene. Uh, there's that really awesome moment where uh, Kevin Hart is ordering. And then the guy behind the counter goes like, and what about him? And Kevin Hart's like, don't be like that, man. Yeah. Look at him in the eye. I talk to him directly. That's, it's just like a brief moment. But it's really good, you know, and it's not in the original. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the original is, wrong for not having that moment but it's just i like that they decided to make this character kind of just like a more aggressive in a way that omar Sy wasn't aggressive omar Sy was pretty gentle and like, he, well okay so counterpoint off that they make kevin hart's character more socially aggressive because one of the things we talked about and i love about the Dries character is how physically imposing he is right. and how he like bullies people in yes. that yeah, yeah 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 and i'm glad they didn't try to have kevin hart do that because you know <laughs> I'm not sure how believable that would have been. It would have been as believable as him trying to outdance on our side at the <laughs> birthday party. I mean, that wasn't going to happen. And that was another good call, too, that they're just like, let's just do something different because there's no way we're going to have something like that. It's good because it makes it, uh, especially on rewatch, I realized that that just becomes about Nicole Kidman. Like the big moment in that sequence is that he gets Nicole Kidman to dance, mm -hmm. which leads to Brian Cranston going like, oh, I didn't know you could dance. And then they have that moment, uh, which really means more after you've seen the movie and you realize that they're getting up together, which I don't buy. And I think that on rewatch, it bothered me more now than the first time I watched it. I, I don't think as much as they try, I don't think that they build up that no. enough. And I thought the movie was going to end just with them together, Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston. And then when like they set it up, like, oh, there's someone here to see you. I knew where it was going. I was like, fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> It's uh, not Nicole Kitzman's fault. I think she does what she can no, with, with yeah, the screen time not. she has and all the... None of this movie, the failings of this movie is no one in its fault necessarily. It's just... Except maybe whoever wrote that line, uh, I can't feel anything. I don't, I don't feel, feel anything. anything. <laughs> like, that was one of those, like, I put my hands on my cheeks and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> because they were doing so well up till then. Because he does the, I can't feel anything, dramatic pause. And again, like, then the camera pans up to his stoic face. He's basically looking at you, the viewer. I don't feel anything. Um, but before that, the sequence before that, the whole thing with Julianne Margulies, like you said in Contrarian's Corner, it's actually really good. Yeah. That's probably the most effective scene in the entire movie for me. She's really good. Uh, he's great. The They even put like a really, you know, shitting on this movie for its lack of subtlety, but there's just like kind of a hint of like brooding music in the background while it's all going on. It's, to me, easily the best constructed scene in the movie. And... It's one of the only times where you can really feel 
both sides of the equation you can like feel where kind of they're both coming from and i I obviously i can't relate to a quadriplegic at the same time i can kind of feel his sense of alienation and isolation and yeah it's uh it's it's really good i wasn't expecting there to be a scene that good in this movie right well she's really good julia margulies comes in and you know just in that one still as gorgeous as ever (laughs) like she's straight out of the set from uh, er um she the way that her demeanor slowly changes Mm-hmm. And she stops being enthusiastic about the date, and yeah. she just looks bummed or kind of lost in thought. It's that was really good. It's really heartbreaking, really. Yeah. Um, how did you feel now that we're in real talk? How do you feel about the flashbacks, the POV flashbacks to him? I guess having sex. I hadn't even thought that about. That was it. just very <laughs> abrupt. I was like, whoa, whoa, what? Um, I mean, I didn't. I honestly, I don't think it registered that we that. Some of it was him having sex, but it, I mean, I just saw it as, oh, he's just remembering his wife and remembering the accident. And just the fact that we got to see his wife, I mean, that kind of, it didn't bother me. Uh, no, it, like, um, it's like a video game. Sometimes when video games shift POV too much, it annoys me. And that was kind of, it didn't do it enough to annoy me. It was just like, okay, sometimes we see things through Brian Cranston's memory. <laughs> All right. Sometimes Sorrentino puts Kurt Russell to do a voiceover there. And... <laughs> yeah, uh, it didn't do enough to bother me. Uh, all the things in this that I could bitch about being not subtle or um, too obvious or contrived, all of that is just the way American filmmakers, for the most part, think they have to make movies now. So it would be me just more bitching about the whole general overtone. There's nothing in this movie that was inherently offensive to me, really, um, that I can think of right now off the top of my head. Like you said, it's better than Green Book. Yeah. (laughs) It just suffers from a lot of the trappings of what modern movies, modern movies meant for mainstream audiences are supposed to be. Because mainstream audiences typically are really lazy and just want everything fucking handed to them right there. But now, how many people do you think are inspired to watch the French original because they like this, right? I mean, I would think uh, I had a couple of friends that liked this movie Mm -hmm. and I told them, I was like, I played them a couple of clips from uh, the French version. I played them Omar Sy at the party dancing and I played them the opening and I was like, okay, cool. It's the same thing, but it's different. So going from that, we can compliment Kevin Hart and then also some things Brian Cranston does. I don't think they have very good chemistry at all really i i bought it i mean i bought it but like again this is where the the as you refer to it the albatross of the untouchables being there <laughs> where uh uh Dries and philippe like i would watch any movie those two guys were in again together just like their chemistry <laughs> so good together um that that is the one thing i could not compare it to um i actually i want to say I like Cranston's character, maybe not necessarily the performance. I think the performance is fine. I didn't have the the. I didn't notice what you were saying that you know he's he kind of like goes in and out of character or he changes gears a lot. But I kind it's of like, like inflection and shit he changes is really inconsistent. Um, kind of like what I said in Contreras Corner. I really like that they made him a little more feisty than than the French version. I mean, and that's fine. Philippe works with Driss because. They have very specific personalities that are very different from the personalities they it's have here. It's so. also the way specifically the character was written for it. It because Philippe is supposed to just kind of 
that's the whole point of Driss is tells him to fucking stand up for yourself. Like it, he's too reserved, whereas here, right? If Cranston, they're oil and water. Right. If yeah. Cranston didn't fight back, then just it Kevin would be Hart, the Kevin Hart show. <laughs> exactly. He would just steamroll him. Yeah. Uh, but here, I it's not even just that he fights back. I really I had forgotten about the NDR, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a big deal because it really tells you where he is in life as far as. Uh, you know, I think that he makes a stronger impression than Philippe in the original. Yeah. With Philippe, I think that, I mean, you're enjoying the movie, so you don't mind, but there's a lot of times where you're like wondering what the hell's going on in his head beyond just kind of being bummed and missing his wife and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but here, you know, you have a better grasp of what's going on with Cranston, I think, from the very beginning. Uh, there's not so much of a mystery, but but you're right. He doesn't have that arc where he needs to learn to stand. You know, he doesn't have a daughter that he needs to yeah. set straight. Yeah, uh, and that that does happen in the French one. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's fine for what it is. I, I mean, I'd give it a C, perhaps. Is PG thirteen? I guess they didn't swear or anything really in it. Touch his freaking ears. <laughs> Uh yeah, it, it's it's fine. It is not in the same it's not cut from the same cloth as the original in my opinion. Um which also I give them props of not necessarily lifting, but I guess they would probably say paying homage many of the sequences, especially the um god, I can just see it now. The middle-aged to elderly crowd watching the american version during the shaving scene and just knee slapping and because <laughs> that is a great sequence and it's lifted almost spot for spot from uh the original so to your point i hope this motivated more people to go see the untouchables because it's a better movie that's not necessarily to say this is bad it's just kind of for me it is what it is um i was looking up when i watched it earlier this year i gave it three stars uh, I think I'm going to bump it to three and a half. Jeez. Even though the ending worked even less for me this time, I I really liked the... Even with two weeks in between watching you know, the original, this one, the contrast, the good contrast, was I, I appreciated more. You know, all the like the racial stuff, like the good things that make it feel a little more American, mm-hmm. uh, they worked a lot better. I was able to notice them better, acknowledge them better. Uh and you know they make up for the failings, so to speak. For uh, they make up for the clunky lines, like I don't feel anything, and <laughs> and just the weird Nicole Kidman, you know, happy ending at the yeah. end. Yeah, it's definitely Americanized. Uh, I I mean a C. I'll give it a C. Um, Kelly, your wife is a big fan of The Untouchables. Does she like this? Oh, she wouldn't watch it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good job, Kelly. <laughs> and I even tried because, you know, I rented it and uh, I watched uh, for 30 minutes or so. I watched yesterday uh, and then I had to go do something and then I finished it at night. But, you know, when I watched it for 30 minutes, I was like, you know, she might like it. I, <laughs> uh, and, I, I, I can almost guarantee I'll never watch this again <laughs> because I watched it for this podcast. I've seen it. I know it's not terrible. It's fine. But now going forward i'll always have the option to just watch the untouchables if right. i want to watch this right. so unless there's a set of circumstances where you need to tell somebody that kevin hart is not that bad <laughs> that's true <laughs> next time i see reed see he's not too bad 
Um, and you know what? Uh, I honestly, my experience with Brian Cranston, I think I brought it up with the in, in the show before. Post Breaking Bad, I've had trouble with Kevin, <laughs> with Brian Cranston, in most movies. Uh, I just kind of feel like he's Godzilla included. I'm sorry. <laughs> have you seen Larry Crown? No, I haven't. Dude, he has a line in that where he tells Julia Roberts, uh, he's her husband. Right. And they're like, marriage is on the fritz. Ed, Eddie's listening to this right now, knowing exactly what I'm about to say. Uh, and she like finds his porn stash, and they get into an argument. And he says, and this is supposed to be delivered with the utmost sincerity <laughs> and conviction, you're just jealous because I like big knockers and you don't have them. And the Oscar goes to. <laughs> What's worse is Tom Hanks wrote that. I watched that whole and movie. And directed yeah, it. That, that movie was like watching so much fall apart in front of me. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Post oh, Breaking Bad, Walter White. Right. Yeah. I don't think that I've ever like sat down to watch uh, a feature film, Post Breaking Bad, with Brian Cranston in it and go, okay, yeah, finally, you know, they captured. Or, or he calmed down. It always feels to me like he's trying too hard or be, or that they're giving him too much too much rope because he's yeah. Walter White, so he can do whatever he wants. He has the smallest of parts in Contagion that's good. I don't even remember him. I, Contagion if anything, fucking rules. Oh, yeah, I know that. I yeah. don't remember Cranston. I, I know he he's in Argo, and he's okay in Argo, but he's also kind of Oof. anybody could have been there in, in that. Anyone could have been in that movie, <laughs> and I'll never rewatch it. Uh, but... All the all the other movies, man. He there's this awards bait uh, movie about a screenwriter Trumbo. I think the movie might be called yeah. Trumbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's bad. His performance. He's just so mannered, and he's so like, I want an award. And and in this, I think that maybe because I feel like he had the. He had the opportunity to go big, mm-hmm. right? And nobody would blame him because he's going against Kevin Hart. But instead, to me, he seems restrained. <laughs> so maybe that's why I, I kind of just, in general, appreciate his his performance here. He got wind that it was going in the can for two years and <laughs> said, all right, strap me up. <laughs> Brian Cranston's such a fascinating actor to begin with. I remember my dad telling me specifically, like, it took him a while because... Uh, I got my parents the first season of Breaking Bad for Christmas one year because I'd heard it was great. and They always love getting invested in TV shows. And I remember him telling me it took him like the duration of the first season to really get into it because he they're not stigma, but he was used to Brian Cranston like as Howl and like doing just comedic stuff right. that like it's uh, he's a very layered actor. And I think it, I don't think it's clear it took everybody a long time to come around on exactly how talented he is. Um, yeah, I just I just don't know. I don't know if it's a directing thing or maybe he went through a phase where he was just being big. Uh, I mean, you you like that the, the Godzilla from 2014 or whatever, and he's not yeah. there even for the whole movie. But when he's there, he's just painting with broad strokes. I oh mean, yeah, just and but compared to everybody else, it's just like he's walking through the door with his arms stretched out, just like <laughs> spinning in circles. Right. So, and we do get that famous GIF of him GIF, right. clasping his mouth. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, God, I find myself almost like weekly having to defend that movie to someone. <laughs> People just like to shit on that movie. It's awesome. I like my Godzilla fat. I can relate to it. All right. <laughs> so, following the Untouchables and Upside that we've completed uh, for episodes number ninety four and ninety five, we will be not going too far from home. We're surely not going to France for this one. We're staying here in Texas for 
the, of course, 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the counterpart, the 2003 remake starring Jessica Biel, Arlie Ermey, um, Brian Aronofsky. No, that's the director. What? <laughs> it's Brian, it's something Ofsky, the guy who plays Leatherface. He's the same guy who uh, played Zangief in the 1994 Street Fighter movie. You bring that guy up every few movies, and I'm like, he's also in this one? Because the last time we brought him up with Hudson Hawk, he was the guy that was like, you want me to rape him? Uh-huh. And I was like, what? Very excited. You've seen both of them, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, each once, and both of them a long time ago. When the original starts, I'm just going to shut my computer, put my notebook to the side, put my hands behind my head. And <laughs> Start I, quoting I, along. I got it all up here, baby. No need for <laughs> note-taking. Um, yeah, that, that episode's going to go long, just all my stories and little like bits of trivia. <laughs> Did you know? And uh, that'll conclude the autumn of remakes and... What comes after that? Well, you'll just have to hang around to find out. That being said, uh, before we let y'all go, as we always do with the Contrarians, we close with plugs. Uh, First and foremost, our opening and closing track, we want to plug the Festive Years, who provide us with Last Stand and Summer of 99, thefestiveyears.com, for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend, listener, uh, fellow podcaster, Hans Rothwieser, he did our logo, he has two podcasts. One is called Nación Combi. That's in Spanish. You can find it anywhere. And uh, it's just about Peruvian stuff, mostly politics. He also has a podcast that's on iVox called Living in Peru. That's about uh, immigrants to Peru. And that one's in English. Uh, so no matter which of the two major languages of the world you speak, you can listen to him. Um, you can also contact him at Mildemonios. Uh, at hotmail.com. That's M I L D E M O N I O S. Uh, if you want logos, if you want comics, if you want to just talk to him, uh, you can read other stuff that he writes at mildemonios.pe. And you can also troll him on Twitter at mildemonios. So God bless. Whatever you want to do with hands, there's a way to reach him. Um, also, like I said, this will be our, our, a perennial plug until the weekend off, but other worlds, Austin from our friend Reed, uh, the sci-fi film festival here in our own city. Yes. Uh, December Literally 5th right the down 8th. the street from where we're at right now. <laughs> yes. Uh, just go to otherworldsfilmfest.com, get your badge, come here, and uh, hang out with a bunch of sci-fi nerds, uh, including myself and Alex. And I talked over you there. What's the date on that? December 5th through 8th. Perfect. Uh, and real quick, to go back a pace, uh, we literally just got a, a tweet response to our episode from Emily Higgins saying, I want a lot of conversations surrounding Nicole's awkward dancing. Uh, you know, we said there was no real uh, issues of race in this. I will say that was definitely one of them. She just goes out and dances like the whitest person ever. And Brian Cranston's <laughs> just like, you're a great dancer. And then he he tries to make her look better by dancing in his wheelchair. Yeah. And it's still he kind of he can't. He had more fun than Philippe at his birthday party. That is true. Also, I think that, I mean, yes, it's awkward dancing, but in the context of the movie, it's kind of a great moment for yeah. her. So, you know, I'd rather see somebody dance awkwardly, but happily. Shit, all that was missing was her taking her glasses off before she did it. <laughs> uh, all right, for my plugs, uh, I've been trying to be a bit more conscious about watching more movies, even if it just means having them on in the background while I do laundry and not necessarily devoting my full attention to it. One of those being The Fundamentals of Caring, a Netflix original movie that uh, Julio 
mentioned had been has been in his Netflix queue forever, and it was in mine forever until I finally gave it a whirl last week. Mattis rule, ninety minutes. Did laundry while I had it on. Perfect. Um, uh, I don't buy Selena Gomez as this uh, nomadic badass that they try to pass her off as, um, and the. Uh, gentleman in the lead craig roberts is fine it, it, basically if you're gonna watch it it's paul rudd when we see paul rudd flex his acting muscles it's kind of infrequent because he, you want to talk about a guy who's effortless especially his comedies it's just here it is um so if you ever get a chance to watch it i would recommend it just for paul rudd he's tremendous in it and uh as with any contrarian's recommendation uh if you just had to take a stab in the dark of who you would cast to be uh, Selena Gomez's dad in a movie, who would it be? Josh Gad? Bobby Cannavale. Uh, <laughs> of course. So the contrarian seal, the the stamp is put on it with that. Uh, my one true plug goes to, uh, we in, on here, Julio and myself always talk about the, the rush and the uh serotonin release we get when we watch an older movie because it makes us feel like we're expanding our bounds um i had actually picked this up during one of the last criterion sales and hadn't gotten around to watching it but i watched a night to remember the 1958 movie based on the titanic didn't they remake it with kevin hart like last year <laughs> dude no you laugh like i'm making it up okay they definitely remade it and yeah it was called titanic <laughs> am i thinking of a different movie with night and Kevin Hart, keep going. Do your plug. I'm, okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find. Yeah, I have no fucking clue what you're talking about. Night to remember. Great. It's a story about the Titanic. I mean, I'm pretty sure that story is widely known. Uh, black and white film. Who plays uh, DiCaprio? <laughs> uh, it's one of those movies that like there's a hundred people in it that all have some sort of story, and they all kind of intertwine together. Uh, it's. It's obvious why it's a criterion, just because the the set design and uh, the visuals of it all are breathtaking. And it's really engaging. You know, we've talked about in the past uh, having a hard time sometimes with uh, Valley of the Dolls immediately comes to mind that 40s, 50s, 60s acting. Right. Like usually I think the biggest barrier for me to watch a classic movie is getting in the mindset to appreciate that. There's this movie is not without that, but it's all done in a way that's believable because, you know, the the type of rich people that would have been aboard the Titanic, you can buy that they would talk like that and that type of way. And that would say uh, neither me, her, <laughs> nor her, I, nor her, I. <laughs> uh, and so it's very easy to digest through a 2019 lens. Just uh yeah, really impressive stuff. Very, okay. very glad. So I'm not. I own it and watched it. I'm not an idiot. I was. I just got. Stuck Apparently, Sean up. Connery's in it. <laughs> Apparently, you watched it. Yeah, he has an uncredited role as steerage passenger. He doesn't actually have any speaking <laughs> lines. Um, I was thinking of about last night, which is a 2014 remake of About Last Night, 1986, with Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe. Demi Moore, Jim Belushi, right? And then about last night, 2014, has Kevin Hart, Michael Ealy, and Regina Hall. Okay. So I guess Kevin Hart plays a Rob Lowe role? Because there's no way he's Jim Belushi. He could be. I don't know. You realize that it has nothing to do with the Titanic. Yes, but it, but it has the word night. <laughs> and it has Kevin Hart in it. Abandoned ship, man. <laughs> <laughs> Made me feel smarter because I watched an old movie. 
no, it's it's great, uh, and it's I think it's about two hours long. It, it's the we talked about too with uh, Walter Mitty. It's the classic old movie. Boat sinks, movie's over. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you can digest this in your own time. You, you climb, get the fuck out of the theater. <laughs> we got to clean this before the next show and get out of here. Um, a little bit more feedback. Uh, this didn't come in just now, but I I screenshotted it off uh, the wire. Now, uh, her friend Corey, uh just tweeted after listening to the the original Nightmare on Elm Street episode. I wonder if he's less happy about uh, our thoughts after he listens to the remake. But he said, great episode, guys. Though John Saxon could have gotten a little bit more love. I mean, come on, guys. He wasn't he wasn't Enter the Dragon and Cannibal Apocalypse. Um, that's the dad. That's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which I think, I mean, we, we gave him the nod. I'm pretty sure I said that. Outside of Johnny Depp, he was the only other real actor. At the time, he would have been the git. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, also, I I told you uh, via text, but I still wanted to mention it on the show. Our friend Sam from Movie Reviews and 20 Qs, he, uh, he messaged me to let me know, to ask me to let you know that uh, he apologized for making fun of uh, you liking The Office so much because I guess he's been rewatching it, uh, binging it with his kid, and he loves it, and the kid loves it. I don't remember if this whole Office conversation happened while we were recording with him the Muppets episode uh, mm-hmm. that was on his show, or if it was before we recorded and we we're just talking about it, but uh, or maybe after. I don't know. So I don't know if it's like online somewhere, like him, Out like there record, in the right? Record of him making fun of you and saying like, well. Yeah, of course you like the American Office because you're American. Yeah. But now he's like, no, actually, the American Office is really cool. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> to a certain point. Uh, that's fitting because yesterday or today or two days ago, somewhere in the past few days was the 10-year mark of the episode where Jim and Pam got married. Did anybody do anything? No, I just saw something Netflix posted about it. My reason for bringing that up is because I said it was a good show until a point. And that <laughs> that's was, the point. That's the point. And yeah, don't tell me you didn't cry when uh, Michael oh, left. Oh, God. It was a mess. <laughs> no, there was still good stuff after that, but hindsight being what it is, that's what the show should have ended. Um, yeah, uh, in the final bit of uh, just cleanup or related, podcast-related news before my plugs, uh, and I should have mentioned this probably last episode, maybe even two episodes ago, uh, we had another spot of the IMDb Journey show, and we got our asses kicked once again oh, at yeah. the draft. Real bad. Even though we we did it correctly, except for the part where we once again drafted with our heart, and so of course we didn't go for I easy. I thought we were going to do all right. Yeah, but you know, I just there was a part of me that knew that if they got stuff like Get Out, which they did, you know, it's just people love it way Run more than you train. or I. Yeah, so it was just we did all right. I mean, all things considered, actually, well. Our percentage was worse than the last draft we did with them. <laughs> but I think that at least now I feel like, well, at least we tried harder. They got our number. Yeah. We're going to have to have the trilogy fight that no one asked for. <laughs> um, all right. So actual plugs. I uh, just have two brief ones. One, I finally watched HBO's Chernobyl. Five episodes. So you can break it up into uh, 10 half-hour episodes so you can digest it more easily, Alex. But uh, they're... It's really good. It's, I've heard good things. Yes, and it's written... The reason I finally binged this is because it's written by uh, Craig Mason, who has a great screenwriting podcast, and he's always uh, uh, at the Austin Film Festival. So I was like, I don't want to run into him 
uh, in a couple of weeks and kind of have to admit that I haven't watched Chernobyl. Uh, it's also amazing because, you know, he won an Emmy for writing it or whatever. And if you don't listen to his podcast, Craig Mason is mostly known for writing, you know, Hangover 2, Hangover 3, Identity Thief. And oh. it, it's just the kind of thing where, you know, you don't associate his name, even though he's just really good at screenwriting, you know, but you don't associate his the movies that he writes with awards and then suddenly he writes Chernobyl where he's just the only writer that, that or, you know, he's a showrunner mm-hmm. and he gets all this recognition. And then everybody that listens to the podcast, they're like, yeah, we knew. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I, I said on Twitter, I was going to uh, plug them because I really liked this last episode they did, but uh, they count down. Uh, it's a podcast from Australia that I've been listening to for a while now, maybe a year and they've been around for a while, but uh, it's just simple concept. It's two friends and they just, every episode they pick a topic and they do their top 10 of that topic and they just kind of like, you know, make fun of each other, tease each other. They've known each other forever. You get that from their chemistry. So it's it's a lot of fun. And uh, one of them is just outrageously uh, over the top and the other one is a little more, uh, you know, tempered. So the dynamic is a lot of fun just to begin with. And then depending on what they're making the lists about, it can be even funnier or insightful. Uh, but but generally, you know, I, I listen to it to be because it makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. And then they had an episode, just their most recent episode that was uh, the top 10 movies that taught us something about dating. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly they're getting really personal because, of course, it's a very personal topic and they have to tell stories with their picks that they just really get about it, it, into their personal lives. And it was just... It was just as funny as there always are, but it was also just, it was pretty delightful. And I, in my mind, I was like, this is, I think, the perfect episode that you would give to somebody to listen to the show because uh, it's not just that they're funny, but it's also, wow, surprise, they're human. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And of course, I knew that because I've been listening to them for like a year, but you know, you can take the shortcut and listen to this episode and really get the whole meal in just like, you know. 90 minutes or however long it is it's it was really good it was easily one of the, my favorite episodes of a podcast i've listened to this year so um if you're looking for new things to listen to or even if you want to listen to like a one you know give it like a one episode try uh the countdown movie and tv reviews that's that's them of course i'll put the link uh with the show notes but you know you can just google the countdown and go from there yeah we got that in the queue after your recommendation all right so as always we appreciate y'all listening to the contrarians uh, fire up your chainsaws for the next two episodes. Well, actually, before the next numeric one, episodes. Yeah. Well, so the first canonical the, episodes. Yeah, that will be the beginning of the new Contrarians year. Year six starts with a chainsaw massacre original, but before that, we need a big you know, fancy new logo and opening. <laughs> year six, the Contrarians. But uh, yes, any longtime listeners knows what comes next before the venture into the new year. It'll be the contrarians uh, year retrospective uh and also a reflection over the previous five years and it's time to give out some awards yes the Embrys and the rouseys uh if you're not familiar with them be sure to listen to our awards episode to get a proper explanation as to why we hand <laughs> these out I, I i actually i think i'm pretty sure i'm gonna uh make a little page on our webpage that we can link to that has the full explanation and the history of them and what the nominees are Hell this yeah. year. Uh, just so that people are caught up because, you know, we still have two or three weeks before that episode is actually released. Yeah. And so people can kind of like play along and maybe try to guess 
what our winners, what our picks are going to be. So Yeah. That'll be the next episode following that. If I can get my fucking chainsaw analogy in. Put some skin on your face. Fire up a chainsaw. <laughs> get some barbecue ready. We're going down to Texas. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. The summer of 1999.